With kids around, me time runs out fast. Don't waste valuable child-free minutes on a drink run. Instead, get Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly has the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Get date night rolling before your parents bring him back. How about a living room sip and paint? They'll never know you stole their crayons. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Joining me today is my friend, David Pepper. David is one of the brightest guys in politics today because he really is able to compress down complex and big issues onto a whiteboard. You've probably seen his videos on YouTube and elsewhere where he is able to take these big consequential changes going on in American politics and make them understandable and make them explicit and show people who are trying to stand up to this very authoritarian and dark sort of force out there in the world. The people on the small D democratic side can win and the people on the small D democratic side can can triumph even in this very dark moment. He's run for office a few times in Ohio, served as a county commissioner there, took on Mike DeWine at one point. And I think in 2014, that was one of those indicators that Ohio was becoming a deeper red state than it ever had been. And I'm happy to have David with us today. There was also maintained what was called an enemies list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. David, welcome to The Enemies List. Thank you. Great to be back with you. Absolutely. Good to have you on. So uh, I guess let's start where I, where I, what I, what I just mentioned, Ohio used to be seen as the quintessential swing state, the state that, you know, was always going to affect elections because it represented such a close picture of what America was uh, for years and years. And that's kind of changed now, hasn't it? It's become a much more red state in the last, uh, in the last six, seven years. Yeah, it has. I mean, sadly, and this is why I wrote the, the first book I did, Laboratories of Autocracy, we've now become sort of the bellwether of what happens when your state and state house gets taken over and gerrymandered that, that a state that a few years ago felt maybe a little Republican, but moderate can spin out of control into this far right stuff that we're seeing now. So we were a bellwether in one way before, and now we're a bellwether about what can happen when you, when you let extremists take over your state house. It's, it's a well, painful thing to go through, to be honest. Well, as a Florida man, I can, I, I feel your pain. Yeah, same thing. Um, you know, it, Florida changed a little more slowly. It changed a little more glacially. I mean, Ohio always had a sort of uh, of populist Democratic flair to it. And I think a lot of those people got sucked into the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of other folks retired and left the state and sort of made it more and more red over time. Explain to us the demographics of what happened in Ohio, because people looked last year at the race. They said, you know, Tim Ryan's the kind of guy who can beat a J.D. Vance, who is crazy. Right. Talk to us about how it changed, because Ohio is still going to be a major part of our politics for a long time, even if even as a red state. How it changed demographically and politically in the last few years? Well, let's, let me be, let me defend Tim Ryan for a second. Uh, oh, no hate for Tim Ryan. Yeah, by the way. I don't mean that, that you were criticizing, but 
the governor candidate here lost to DeWine by 26 points. Tim lost by only mm-hmm. six in, in a lot of years right. with a more normal turnout. And our urban turnout was terrible. Uh, in a different year, Tim right. wins that race and still can, just like I think Sherrod Brown can win in 24. But overall, mm-hmm. what's happened is you did see in some of the old sort of Democratic leaning or strong Democratic areas in uh, smaller towns, mid-sized industrial cities that have struggled, Trump did did appeal to them in a way that you've lost some of your old Democratic areas, you know, Mahoning County, where Youngstown is, right. Trumbull County. And without those, and with turnout down and the, frankly, suppression effective of our big cities, it's not impossible to win Ohio. It's just gotten harder. Uh, now, what are the opportunities long term? Well, the suburbs that used to be very Republican are now moving Democrat like they are in a lot of different parts of the country. Um, mm-hmm. So the growing parts of Ohio, the suburbs and the cities actually lean Democratic. And at some point, right. you know, the right candidate and Tim came close in a really bad year. But if we can get our urban turnout back to what it was not long ago, be able to shave your losses to get to the high 30s or 40s in rural Ohio and take advantage of what used to be where people like Bob Taft and George Voinovich won elections sure. in the suburbs, you can still win. But yeah, in the short term, especially in the Trump era, the flipping of these older areas that used to be pretty Democratic to Republican has made it much harder. And and the turnout dip in Cleveland, and, and, and there was terrible right. turnouts last November uh, in Youngstown and Akron and Dayton. That um, really made it very hard for someone like Tim Ryan to win. You know, Ohio is about as egregious as Florida in terms of political gerrymandering yep. to to sort of try to shape the political farm teams of the future and to try to compress as many Democratic votes into the urban cores as they can. Is the, now, did, am I wrong, or is there a lawsuit out there p- pending on that still? Is that still in play? Um, basically, they sadly, I hate even saying the words, they succeeded in ignoring the Ohio Constitution five different times for state house and two different times for federal. Um, and but but these were all short term maps. So there should be another iteration. The problem is they won the Supreme Court after ignoring an independent court all that time. So they right. know that there won't be any accountability if they ignore the Ohio Constitution again. Um it really was, honestly, like we're not only gerrymandered, we're at this point basically lawless. They got away with violating the Ohio Constitution for an entire year and then got a new court that basically ruled in their favor. So it's, it is a very um, tough moment in Ohio. North Carolina has gone through the same thing. I mean, uh, absolutely. They ignored, the, I, they ignored the court. They went up with Moore v. Harper. In the meantime, they changed the rules of how they elect uh, Supreme Court justices. The Republicans won, and now they'll have a court that will do whatever the state house wants. I'm afraid to say, that's happened in mm-hmm. both these states. So, when you wrote your book in 21, and I was blown away by it, I thought it was terrific. Laboratories of Autocracy. Tell people a little bit about what you predicted in that book. I mean, they're seeing it come to fruition now in a lot more states. But you, you, it was unfortunately a very prescient book about what's going to happen in the states with these Republican takeovers of every branch of government. Yeah, what's funny is I wrote it sort of desperate to get it out there because I was worried about what's happening. But now it looks like it was early because it's actually gotten even worse since I wrote the book. So basically the book, mm-hmm. the point of the book was to say the, the bright, shiny objects of Washington, D.C., of course, are somewhat important. I, I, I don't like watching Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't like what she's doing. And George Santos is a con man and all that. But don't get distracted by all that because there are hundreds of people just like those people in state houses, 
passing mm-hmm. laws undermining democracy, in many cases, brutally undermining it. And I wrote it in 21 to say to people, you know, I, the, the sub headline was uh, the subtitle, a wake up call from behind the lines. Like, wake up to this. The attack on democracy, the front line of it are state houses and states. That's mm-hmm. the front line of their strategy. Of course, courts matter and they want to win Congress. They want enough Senate seats to stop a filibuster. But they never lose sight that the that the, the sword of their attack are gerrymandered in unaccountable state houses where they can get away with passing laws that Mitch McConnell would never let go through the Senate because they cost everyone their next election. And so the point of that book right. was to say, once these places have no accountability, you will see a downward spiral of extremism and further tax on democracy to keep it all going. And that's the part that sadly we are seeing right now, Tennessee, Missouri, Ohio, Florida. Uh, and, and what they understand is that once they commit themselves in these state houses to being extremists, way out of touch with the mainstream of these states and to delivering horrible public outcomes to keep their private donors happy, once they've committed to being extremists who are not serving mainstream public outcomes, they also know they must keep attacking democracy because if they ever had a fair district, they would lose and they know it. And that's why these very perverse incentives of these unaccountable systems sort of build on one another. And, and if it feels like it's accelerating, that's because it is. And the worst part is, it's not like one state at a time. They are operating in conjunction and concert. So they are always learning. If something passes in Florida, well, they're going to bring it to Ohio. If something oh, yeah. passes a legal challenge in Ohio, they're going to do it in Florida. So it really is accelerating. That's why I, I, I if people feel like they keep seeing more and more of it, the truth is it's because they are. And the system that we're stuck with is one that naturally accelerates until we start to put some brakes on, which until now we haven't really done. Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo, modern management made simple. So let's talk about that for a minute. And and we could, I mean, we could talk all day about the terrible, horrible legislation that gets pushed around by these guys. I mean, people don't realize that half the voting legislation in this country is written by two assholes from the Heritage Foundation. Exactly. Hans von Spakowski and Christian Adams. Yeah, they they don't realize that these voter restrictions that are passing all over these Republican state legislatures are written by two guys in D.C. who really, 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 really don't want black people to vote. But let's talk a little bit about how you push back on it because I think one of the great things about your whiteboard presentations is a lot of the time you really explain to people like how to find the breakpoints in the system, how to work a pushback on these things. Talk to us a little bit about where people can start pushing back now in these states and nationally. And honestly, this is why I wrote the whole new book, because I feel like this guidance has not been given. We have the oxygen that keeps these places going is lack of accountability, lack of accountability. They get away with lawlessness and they get away with deeply unpopular political things they're pushing because we don't run against them because they're gerrymandered 
and we rarely hold them accountable. So any moment that you can bring some accountability is a win, even if you're not knocking them out of office. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lack of accountability is what allows all this stuff to, again, spiral downward. So the way to think about it is, one, it's not just about solving in D.C. It's about bringing accountability back to the lives of the politicians doing this stuff. Right. And right now, when they're in gerrymandered districts, and even worse, when half of them in many of these states aren't even opposed in the next election, they are living in a world with no accountability. So the number one step is bring that accountability. We have to start running in far more places. We can't continue to give them to fuel it all by literally, we are letting these people do the most insane laws that are not even popular in their own states. And then they get essentially reappointed because we don't even challenge them in general election. What do we want to have happen? I want the guy who authored the bill that sent the 10-year-old rape victim in Ohio to Indiana to get the help she needed. I want that guy hearing from his neighbors. We didn't know you authored that bill. Right. We didn't know you pushed that. Whether we beat that guy or not, I want him to start hearing from his own district. We didn't know you were some extremist. We just waved you in the parade. In the last campaign, we didn't know because no one ran. We have to start. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you do this in enough places, you'll win some of these races. You'll force them to move money around to defend themselves. But you'll at least for the first time in a long time bring some measure of accountability to people who right now their entire world is no accountability, which means they are rewarded by being extremists. That's how they avoid the next primary. So the book goes through, you know, whether it's whether it's re-engaging voters who have been suppressed, whether it's figuring out how to value running everywhere, which right now we do not value. We only value running in swing districts, in seats that have a federal impact. We have to see that running everywhere in the battle for democracy is incredibly important to literally, you know, Steve Bannon is recruiting people to be elections officials. We better be recruiting people to be pro-democracy elections officials. He wants election deniers. We need to have people who stand for democracy. So the battle is in states. It's in state houses and other local officials. We have to join the battle there, and we have to bring accountability wherever they are doing the damage they are doing. You know, I think that's one thing Democrats have, have had a, a real problem with in the last few years. They tend to focus every cycle on one or two big, sexy candidates who get a lot of attention, and the vast majority of the donor money flows into these places where where they just can't win. And I had a big Democratic donor recently ask me, like, oh, I love Beto. And I'm like, oh, Beto's a great guy. And he's, but but I don't want to, I don't want to make that mistake again. Where should I be putting my money? I said, well, look, it, you know, and it, it's a good supporter of, of Lincoln. So I'm, you know, he said, I said, well, listen, you'd be, you'd be better off spending a little bit of time in state house races because it will scare the hell out of those people if you rattle their cage. And, and look, even in these gerrymandered districts in these in places like Florida and North Carolina and Ohio, there are still places where the Republicans can't, they can't, they better leave one eye open at night because there still are places that are close enough and demographically that are changing inside the 10 year redistricting window faster than they, than the redistricting will protect them. So there are opportunities out there. Right. And the agenda they're passing is more extreme than these districts. Mm-hmm. If you run against them, you point that out. And in many of these places, not all, but in many of these places like Ohio, they don't have a set of outcomes that they can defend. I mean, small towns are dying. Infrastructure is dying. You, you saw the map the other day of life expectancy. It's, yeah. it's much worse in m- many of these areas. 
And, you know, schools in these rural areas are often really struggling, which are the heart of these communities. So there's something to run on in all these places. And as you said, now, again, I'm, gl- I don't, I'm not going to argue with people giving to high-profile Senate races. But sure. take 20% of the money that goes to those races, and you could be fully funding dozens of state house races, mm-hmm. and every penny would go so much further than an extra $10 million on a TV campaign. So, so it's just a better value add That's right. where democracy is shaped if we're smarter. Think about it as your democracy. I have a whole chapter on this in the book. Every donor, have a, think of it as a democracy budget. I love that. Not just a, I respond to a few Senate races budget, a democracy budget. Sure, help out some, some candidates who are exciting and some swing Senate and House races, but make sure in your democracy budget, you're going to battle where they are, which is in state houses, in districts that could flip a state house, or in districts where an extremist has run unopposed for 10 years, so he keeps acting like an extremist. Uh, we, we have to really start broadening how we invest with that sort of a pro-democracy budget in mind. You know, I think that's a really good point, is that the disproportionality of it being at the top of the ticket generally in these states <clears throat> where donors, especially when it becomes a national sort of cause celeb. I've told people this story a long time. When I came back to Florida in 1993 after President Bush lost to Clinton, went back into Republican politics, the chairman of the party back then put out basically what was a 25-year plan to take over. And it started out with Republicans who didn't have a damn dime to rub together back then. They would go out. Yeah. They're like, I'm going to have people running for a school board and soil and water conservation district. And and maybe that soil and water conservation district guy will run for sheriff next time or state you know, or, or state house next time. That sort of ba- ground up, ground root, grassroots ground up stuff is really important for the Democrats, especially because as you're, and you're right, these people believe that they're never going to get challenged from the center. They're never going to get challenged from, from anybody who's, who's, they're not scared of anybody except the people to their right. I don't know if you've seen this in Ohio, but down here in Florida, you were talking about Steve Bannon, who unfortunately darkens my state's door. I was down giving a speech to some Democrats in, in uh, on the Gold Coast in Sarasota a couple months ago. And one of the folks down there said, well, the, here's what's creeping me out. He goes, I'm a Democrat. It's it's Steve Bannon and Mike Flynn are now trying to re- to recruit people who are to the right of the MAGA candidates they recruited two or four years ago. And it sort of was a, a moment of clarity, just like the old Republican Party that I worked for was eaten by the Tea Party, and the Tea Party was eaten by the MAGAs, and the MAGAs are now being eaten by the ultra-MAGA QAnon cuckoo pants people. Do you agree with me that there's an opportunity there coming up, I think, in, in this and the next election cycle, where you get more Doug Mastrianos, more Kerry Lakes, more, Blake, more, more crazy people who allow Democrats to sort of say, hey, listen, we may not agree on everything here in the 15th district, but I'm not insane. I don't believe that Hillary Clinton's a pedophile cannibal you know, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think they're way over their skis right now when it comes to extremism. And, and if you look at the most remarkable result of November 2022 was not the Senate results. It's the fact that not a single election denier running for Secretary of State won in a swing state. Right. We ran the table. And if you had said that six months before, I think we would all said, well, we hope to win a lot of those, but every single one... Voters sort of, and if you look at them, those election-denying Secretary of State Steve Bannon-style uh-huh. candidates 
really stuck out in voters' minds as problematic. Mark Fincham. And they did worse than the other statewide candidates in many, in many. And Carrie Lake was of that brand too. And so I do think voters are, do do appreciate the difference when someone is truly in that far, you know, beyond MAGA, truly election denying candidate. And I think that that's more and more of who they are. I mean, again, I go back to go back to Mike DeWine versus J.D. Vance. DeWine won by 26. Right. Vance won by six. They are going with the Vance for the future, not sure. the DeWine. So they're getting they're they're over time, I think, making it more and more difficult for themselves mm-hmm. by going with a, a group of people that are way out of the mainstream, are feeling more and more lawless, are pushing bills that the average person, again, you know, think about only a few years ago. It wasn't it in Missouri and Indiana where Democrats won races they weren't supposed to win because of abortion bans, no exceptions. Um, and people not knowing even how to defend those. So I do think there, and this is the other reason why you run, want to run everywhere. Mm-hmm. They are so outside of the mainstream. There are ways to knock these people out that there may not have been if they had stuck to sort of the more moderate Mike DeWine style Republican of a few years ago. As a listener to this podcast, you know democracy is in danger in America and beyond. This titanic challenge requires a powerful response. And that's why Resolute Square was founded. The Enemies List is part of the Resolute Square family. We're a pro-democracy network. The Enemies List is just one part of Resolute Square's pro-democracy content and coverage. Our members get particularly exciting benefits. Exclusive live roundtable discussions with me, Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, and Joe Trippi. In those discussions, you can ask us questions directly, as if you are in the room at a campaign strategy session. In these sessions, we'll give folks answers on how to fight back against the crazy, how to push back against the MAGA media, and how to communicate effectively in the battle for our democracy. We're building a new arsenal for democracy, and we could use your support. Head over to ResoluteSquare.com enemies to let the world know where you stand. With kids around, me time runs out fast. Don't waste valuable child-free minutes on a drink run. Instead, get Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly has the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Get date night rolling before your parents bring him back. How about a living room slip and paint? They'll never know you stole their crayons. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You know, I, I think the abort, and I've been, I've been saying this since I've seen a lot of polling on it recently. The six-week abortion bans are, in my mind, the equivalent of, of defund the police. It was a line that that a, a, a fraction of the or of the edge of the party thought this is a great one. We're going to stick with this, and average voters across the aisle look at it and go, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, not me." And I think that six week ban in Ohio is as punitive as anybody right now, including again, as you referenced earlier, forcing a ten year old rape victim to bear a child is unconscionable. No matter what you feel about abortion qua abortion, that idea of state intervention at a, for a rape victim, which was always the consensus in this country, right? I mean, it was rape, incest, life of the mother were always yeah. things that everybody across the spectrum believed in. Whether George H.W. Bush phrased it that way or Bill Clinton said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Now, and I've, I've always had the theory that the side that overreaches on abortion loses that cycle. I think we've not just overreached. I think it is... I think it's like at the, at the edge of a possibly unexpected blowback uh, from female voters. Yeah, absolutely. And, and 
you know who knows that Ohio Republicans? That's why we're in the middle of this fight right now. They're trying. There is a um, a referendum down the pike, getting signatures right now to put this on the ballot in November, just like it was on the ballot in Kansas. And Republicans are desperately trying to change the Constitution of Ohio this August to raise the threshold to sixty percent to change the Constitution to get ahead of a referendum. They know they're going to lose if they don't do that change. So you know. The, the Republicans, whether it be Mitch McConnell telling Lindsey Graham not to talk about a national abortion ban, Mike DeWine scrubbing his website of all references to abortion uh-huh. last fall, uh-huh. or this 60% change. And this is the whole theory of this new book I've written, Saving Democracy. Right. They know that they represent the minority on most of these issues. And so whatever they can do to avoid a straight up fair democracy vote on their agenda, they want to do. Um, and that that's why they gerrymander. That's why they suppress the other side. That's why in Ohio they're rigging the rules to change the threshold for a constitutional amendment. Right. Same, and that's why Mitch McConnell to- told Lindsey Graham not to talk about it. Mm-hmm. They understand that on a repeated game of a fair playing field election, they would lose again and again and again. And that's why while Democrats, our goal is to win elections on a fair playing field, their goal is really, and they're not really shy about it, to undermine democracy enough to lock in a minority worldview over time that would otherwise never exist in a fair democracy. And the the signs that that's their game plan are becoming more and more clear, you know, every week that goes by. I mean, heck, they're in Hungary. They're in Hungary with Orban to study it, for God's sakes, with CPAC and Tucker and all that. Talk a little bit more about that, because I don't think people, I still think there are a lot of people in the mainstream media who look at these contests still frame the old way. Uh, it's Republicans and Democrats, and one side's this and one side's sort of that. And I don't think they understand just how fundamentally the Republicans have changed, how how the Mike DeWines now are an endangered species and and the Ronda Santi and the J.D. Vances are the rising cohort of, of that party. And let me be clear. One of the problems with the Mike DeWines is they're going along with all of it. Yeah, oh, of so course. So they have become they become transition figures handing things over to this new mm-hmm. brand as opposed to standing up to it. That's why they keep losing their party. It's the Von Poppen um, effect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but what's happening is that, that again, they, without being subtle about it, again, when you're having Orban come to Dallas and celebrate him there, and then you're going, and then you're going to CPAC to study it, you're not being shy about what you're doing. No, they no, understand indeed. that in a fair democracy, where people are voting in a healthy numbers and it's a fair playing field and fair districts, they know they would lose on almost every issue. They're in the minority. I don't care if it's sort of middle class based economics versus trickle down. You know, ending public education, uh, abortion bans, no exceptions. Uh, just you name it. You know, common sense gun reform to some. You know, of of some reasonable nature is very popular. Gun owners agree with it. They know all of this. So their game plan is to avoid that fair democracy referendum on their agenda at all costs. And, and that's why they do so much of what they do through state houses. Why? Because state houses are the perfect place to undermine democracy and get away with it. Gerrymander, suppress. In some states like Ohio, they're getting away with outright lawlessness. You ram that unpopular agenda through those state houses and not D.C., and no one can stop you. No one can even vote you out of office. And that's why in our response to this attack on democracy, as you said, 
if we keep fighting the same Washington, D.C.-based battle right. against their battle, which is in states, we are playing a losing hand. We will con- we will lose even when we think we're winning federal offices. You know, we celebrate winning a Senate seat, but if they kept every state house and they keep churning away at democracy, they're still winning. So the whole the whole uh, you know call to action and everything I say is get to where their battle is, take it on where it is, and that's how you start over time winning again. Not just federal cycles, but the broader battle for democracy that we're in. It's it, it and I, I think that's exactly right. Is that is that if people think of this only as a one and done every cycle and repeat the same movie in their head every time, of course we're going to end up with with outcomes that Republicans are better at because they think in long terms. And again, they would really. I think you're right. They would really like to have the last election at some point. I mean, maybe they'd be pro right. forma sort of noises that sound like an election, but it it, it would essentially be the old days of Iraq where Saddam Hussein receives 104% of the vote every cycle. And it looks a lot more like a North Korea or, or an Iraq or some other autocracy where all the, the symbols and signifiers of voting still sort of happen, but they're not real. So, so yeah. anything else you want folks to know about the new book, David? Yeah. So basically after I wrote the, the laboratories book that we're talking about, I, I got a lot of feedback and you sh- you probably hear this all the time too, David. That was so painful to hear about. Like I kept skipping to the end to understand what I could do because I just I don't even want to deal with how right. horrible it is in these states like Florida, like Ohio. And so they'd say I'd skip to the end and then I'd go back and read the rest. So th- the new book called Saving Democracy is basically all about skipping to the end. It's say okay, once you understand their attack on democracy, that it's not just a federal only, only attack. There is so much you can do that you're never told you can do to lift democracy. Right. And this book walks you through. that. It's called Saving Democracy. The subtitle is A User's Manual for Every American. It is trying to give every single person who has basically, if you watch TV, would think the only way to save the day is for a senator to do something heroic. This is saying, no, we need you to do something heroic wherever you live, in a red state, in a blue state, in a swing area. There is so much you can do to make sure we're running everywhere to make sure we're engaging voters everywhere who have been disenfranchised, to make sure we're signing up to be elections officials, just like Steve Bannon is signing up election deniers to be officials, to take on the censorship we're seeing at school boards and state houses of what our kids are taught. There is so much that people can do. They're too rarely said, told that they can do these things. And so this book is literally like, it's a user's manual. I literally have worksheets where I show to people, look at everything you do in your life, at work, the clubs you're in, the restaurants you go to, every one of those things in your footprint in this world is a jump-off point that you could use to lift democracy. Mm-hmm. You could do all these things without even changing what you're doing. Just think about much more what you do every day and how you can use that to lift democracy. And if you do it in Texas, it's as important as doing it in, in a swing part of Pennsylvania because the battle for democracy, their battle, it's all about these state houses and local governments, that's their front line, which means you're standing on the front line wherever you are. Right. And so the book tries to give people a very, and by the way, I, I go through best practices. I, t- I tout the organizations that if you join them, they can help you do the kind of work we're talking about. I really believe this isn't about what we can do, which is so much. We have to do this stuff. 
we're the majority. If mm-hmm. we simply step up and scale up, I'll put it this way. The scale of the attack on democracy is enormous. You mentioned the Heritage Foundation. It's the Koch brothers. It's Frank LaRose, Ohio Secretary of State, full time thinking through how to use government to suppress democracy. The scale of the pro-democracy side is frankly too small. It may be a majority of the people, but we have to scale up our entire operation. To, to and, and the book tries to give every single person the tools to scale up what they're doing. I think if we do all that, it's not anywhere near too late to save the day. If we keep doing what we're doing or we don't see what they're doing, it may be too late. But I'm a real optimist that if, if just like in the past, if people see this is a genuine threat to democracy, they will see that there's so much more they can do about it than, than today they think they may be able to do. I think that's right, David. And I, and I, hope, I, I hope folks will go out and get the book. It is, it is an important uh, perspective because, again, folks, David is one of these folks, when you read his work and when you watch his videos, he has a clarity of thought and, and, a, and a directive nature to, to how to take action that I think is something people really need to, to face up to as we enter this very, very dangerous time for American democracy. Well, David, thank you so, so much for coming on the enemies list today. I really appreciate it. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again very soon, my friend. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation and all that you guys do. Thank you. Thank you. Today, my rant, and you'll be surprised to hear this, is about Ron DeSantis. Um, he had his crapulous, shit show, flailing, flaming meteor of death rollout on Twitter with Elon Musk on Twitter spaces the other day, but that's not what I'm going to put him on the enemies list for today. A story broke from Matt Dixon and Jonathan Allen at NBC. As the announcement for president approached, senior government officials from Ron DeSantis, government officials, listen to me again, people inside the government of Florida were texting lobbyists saying, you need to give the governor money for the presidential. You need to bundle money for the presidential campaign. You need to get on board and go, uh, with the governor's financial plan for the presidential campaign. You need to give him money and get more people to give him money. Now, the reason they can do this in Florida is the governor has the line item veto. And the state budget has not yet been signed. So every lobbyist in this multi, multi, multi billion dollar pool of money gets a call or a text from a senior government official saying, hey, uh, that's some nice hospital funding you got there. It'd be a shame if there was, uh, you know, an accident or a fire. This is unbelievably criminal. It is corrupt as hell. It is insanely, insanely kleptocratic. This is an example of who Tropical Nixon would be as president. This is an example of who Ron DeSantis would be in the White House. This is insanely corrupt. And I know praying to the gods of the Justice Department to investigate public corruption is seemingly an impossibility in this country, but they ought to be up the asses of people in Tallahassee, Florida right now. They ought to be asking, who are the four individuals who are identified but not named in the Dixon and Allen piece. They ought to be asking Ron DeSantis who these people are. They ought to be asking his fundraisers who these people are. They ought to be going out and examining anyone in the lobbying community who gives Ron DeSantis a contribution before the legislative budget is signed because this is a quid pro quo. It is corrupt as hell and it puts Ron DeSantis on the peak of the enemies list. Ron, get your shit together. Thank you.
Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.